Hello, I'm Harry Glorikian, and this is The Harry Glorikian Show, where we explore how technology is changing everything we know about healthcare. You know me as a podcast host, but in my other life as a life science investor, I often run into people who've been on such interesting, compelling personal journeys, or who have such an inspiring way of looking at the world that I know I want to interview them for the show almost no matter what they're working on. I knew Jen was one of those people when I first ran into her two or three years ago. But Jen isn't just a compelling personality. She's also the founder and CEO of a fascinating drug discovery company here in Boston called 1910 Genetics. Jen's PhD is in pharmacology, and that shows through in her practical focus on fixing the drug discovery process to get more and better therapies into the hands of doctors. To hear Jen tell it, 1910 Genetics is focused on finding the most promising new drug candidates for stubborn health problems, and it takes a refreshingly agnostic approach to everything else. The company doesn't hunt for just small molecule drugs or just protein therapies, it explores both. It doesn't utilize just one form of neural network or machine learning, It uses whatever model produces the best science for a given problem. It doesn't hunt for drugs just using wet lab data or just computational simulations. It does both. It isn't just assembling its own pipeline of drugs or just partnering with larger pharma companies. It's working on both. Jen wasn't even dead set on being an entrepreneur. She had to be talked into applying to the Y Combinator startup incubator and into accepting her Series A investment from Microsoft's Venture Fund. She says the way 1910 thinks about drug discovery is to start with the desired output, say a new molecule to block pain, then figure out what sorts of data inputs exist. Then they find or create all the data they need to analyze the problem. Then they transform that data using whatever AI tools work best until they get some decent drug candidates. She calls it input, transform, output. It's never that simple, of course. But at a time when AI and machine learning focused drug discovery companies are sprouting up faster than dandelions, each one touting some specific reason why its model is better than all the others, 1910 Genetics has a more inclusive approach to solving classic problems in pharmacology, and it's one that I'd love to see spread to other parts of the life sciences business. In our interview back in February, we got a chance to talk about Jen's path from scientific success to starting a company, 1910's business model and drug pipeline, where the name 1910 originated from, and a bunch more. Here's our full interview. Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Harry. Been looking forward to this one. This is a long time coming. I mean, we've been talking about you being on the show for, I don't know, at least two years, um, but it's it's good to finally have you here. And I'm sure that, you know, two years later, there's so much more to talk about. But let me step back here for a second, right? Because when you look at the drug discovery process today, what's wrong with it? What What aspects of it have you set out to fix at 1910 Genetics, just sort of from a high level? Sure. Uh, The drug discovery process today, I'd say there's probably maybe three main things wrong with it. 
The first is that it takes too long. Uh, on average, you're looking at about 12 years to bring a new drug to market for most diseases. Could be shorter uh, for, for rare diseases, but on average, 12, 12 years. Um, it costs a lot of money, uh, upwards of $2 billion uh, each time for each therapeutic. Um, and, you know, it has a very low probability of success, you know, uh, only about 10% of, of, of drug candidates that begin uh, a fit first in human studies would end up making it all the way to FDA approval. And if you go all the way back to the discovery stage, the odds are even lower. You're looking at like some 0.00% or something like that. So, uh, you know, timely, uh, very lengthy. Um, very costly uh, and a, a very risky endeavor. Those are the things that say are, are wrong with the drug discovery process today. And the part that uh, you know I founded 1910 Genetics to tackle is really the entire thing, but really started out with the discovery phase first and kind of like building tools and technologies, you know, along the value chain. So started out focusing on that initial preclinical drug discovery phase, you know, that encompasses target selection, uh, hit finding, hit to lead, lead optimization, finishing out some preclinical work, and then before first in human studies. So our goal is in fact to impact all aspects of the value chain, but we have started on the discovery side. Right. So I guess at a high level, what are the core technologies you're working on at the company? I, I mean, I'd like to come back and dive into like more details in a few minutes, but if you can sort of give the listeners a general picture of the, let's say the unique capabilities you have at 1910 Genetics. Right. You know, uh, today there's a lot of talk about generative AI with chat GPT. So I'm sure even a layman has heard about uh, artificial intelligence and so on. Uh, and there's certainly lots of companies, even on this uh, show of yours, uh, who have um, who you've talked to and, and are taking different approaches to leveraging AI and drug discovery. What I will say that differentiates 1910 Genetics is that we are, as far as we know, the only company that has built a synergistic dual purpose um, small and large molecule platform that integrates artificial intelligence with computation and with wet lab biological automation to design drug-like molecules better, faster, and cheaper than traditional approaches. So in terms of, you know, what are the core pieces of the technology, for us, it's it's that sort of three-legged stool of, of the artificial intelligence, the computation, and the wet lab biological automation, bringing three of them together and deploying them in a synergistic manner uh, and in a modality agnostic manner. I think the modality agnostic manner is perhaps our biggest differentiation where all the other companies in the space are either tackling primarily small molecules or they're doing primarily large molecules. And what we're saying is we see synergies between these two modalities that we have trained our technology to not treat them as uh, you know, uh, completely different, but to actually cross-learn from them and, and to take learnings from small molecule discovery and, and use that to be better at large molecule discovery and vice versa. Interesting. So I guess maybe now's a good time to, to step back for a second and say 1910 genetics. What is, tell us the story behind that. I mean, I, I think sickle cell had, you know, is is one of the underlying reasons for that 1910 genetics name, but maybe you can give people an idea of how you came up with that name. 
Yeah, you know, it, it was it was just I was just trying to have fun. First of all, I was trying to have fun. With the name. Um, we're not like you know a dedicated sickle cell disease company. That's the first uh, myth I want to dispel about us. Um, and the name comes from uh, 1910 is the year that the first patient in the United States with sickle cell anemia was diagnosed. That is true. But what relevance does sickle cell disease have for us? Well, sickle cell is the first disease for which we completely understand the molecular basis, where you can look at a disease and you can say, I know exactly down to the molecular level what causes this disease. And we think of that as the North Star for the types of diseases we want to go after. We want to enter therapeutic areas, indications where the biology is really clear. We, to the, to the extent possible, don't want to take biological risk, right? You know, like if you look at a space like Alzheimer's, for example, you know, does beta amyloid cause Alzheimer's? Is it a cause? Is it an effect? Bio, biology like that, that is uncertain, is not exciting to us. And so when we started out the company, we said, we want to focus on the molecule. We we want to take risk around, can we design a molecule? We don't want to take risk around, do I understand the underlying biology driving this disease? And so we said, we're going to use sickle cell as an example of the types of diseases that we want to go after, where there's a clear positive driver of the underlying uh, biology. And so 1910 is meant as a North Star for us because we realized that, you know, the best molecule will not help you if you've got the wrong biology. And so that's that's sort of like how I came to the name. So, you know, a lot of times we talk about people's career journeys, right? And so, you know, I want to just dig into that just a little bit, right? But and I want to share a little bit of your background with the audience. And so if I get something wrong, you you can sort of correct me. But I know you studied uh, biochemistry in college mm -hmm. and then went on to your doctoral research at Harvard Medical School and Tufts School of Medicine on blood platelets, sickle cell disease. Coincidence, we were just talking about it and the chemical pathways behind pain. Right. And then I believe you were at Howard Hughes Medical Institute fellow, both at Tufts and at Boston Children's Hospital, where you focused on sickle cell drug discovery. And then you made the leap into the business world, where a few years later, you were directing business development for, for a life science startup called Transparency, which I know a little bit about. <laughs> and then you did management consulting in the healthcare industry for Bain and Company uh, for a little while. And then finally, in 2018, if I correct, you founded 1910 Genetics. So if there was a single passion that guided you through all of those experience, how would you describe it to people who are listening? And, and in the end, what sort of, I mean, drove you to the field of computational drug discovery? Right. I'd say, uh, first of all, fantastic summary. I thank you. You got it for the most part. I, I did do my undergrad in biochemistry. My PhD was in pharmacology broadly as a classical sort of discipline. And, and I, set in, I set out to study just what I call classical pharmacology, which is basically the art of or the science and art of, of designing drugs. And like, what does it take to make a therapeutic? 
Um, and, you know, I, I, I was, I applied that um, training in a variety of different places. Hematology was one of them. So platelets, platelet physiology, um, uh, applied to sickle cell and other sort of thrombotic conditions. That was one. Uh, but there was a lot about my PhD work that was not published. For I did a lot of work, for example, in diabetes and, and hypoglycemia. And I did a lot of work um, in some other areas as well. So it, it was a PhD in pharmacology from the Tufts University School of Medicine. It was funded by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. I was fortunate to be selected for a competitive fellowship by HHMI. So um, I, I was a HHMI pre-doctoral fellow throughout my work. Um, the work was in, done in part at the Boston Children's Hospital at Harvard Medical School. So um, Harvard does get some uh, credit as well for the innovations and, and, and the advancements made as part of my, my research. Um, and what I would say motivated me to found 1910, the first thing I would say is I was not one of those kids that grew up like with a lemonade stand, you know, and had like aspirations to like be an entrepreneur. Like, no, I don't have one of those stories for you because um, growing up, as I look at a lot of the essays that I wrote as a kid, I never once said I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I mean, I wanted to, first of all, I wanted to be Jennifer Lopez. Uh, when I look at <laughs> my uh, that was certainly an aspiration. And then for a while, I wanted to be a pilot. And then for a while, I wanted to be like the president of a country, you know, so I look at all the things I wrote throughout, like, you know, elementary school and even middle school, and there wasn't a single, I want to be an entrepreneur there. So I'm definitely one of the entrepreneur, I'm, I'm definitely in the category of like entrepreneurs are made, not born. I don't think I was born an entrepreneur. I think I, I, I sort of... Um, a combination of factors and obviously faith uh, led me there. If I were to say um, what motivated me and what made me take the leap, I think found in 1910, a couple of things had to come together. Um, the first one was, I, as I mentioned, I trained as a classical pharmacologist and I learned how to use traditional tools to identify disease targets, to try to drug them and try to dose targets and all of that. And, and along uh, some, somewhere along the line, I started started to learn about you know predictive analytics. It, before it was called AI ML, just the idea that you can learn from like you know data to make better informed decisions, and that you could perhaps reduce uh, the number of animal testing that you had to conduct in order to get some sort of a verdict on, on a drug candidate that you were working on. And so I, I was sort of like keeping an eye on, you know, trends and, and how the field of machine learning was progressing. And, and I saw that there was perhaps an opportunity to bring it to solve a pain point that I had as a classical pharmacologist. So that was where that was where, what I would say picked my interest. But it wasn't sufficient to go found a company because founding a company is 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 a mental and emotional decision more than it is uh, anything else. And I'd say the second thing that sort of had to come together was I had to experience startup culture myself to be certain that I wanted to go do it. And I know you alluded to transparency life sciences, and I had the good fortune to work with. Tomash and Mark, and to see them as two very experienced entrepreneurs starting a company at a time in their careers where honestly they were really set, right? They they had, you know, they 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 weren't like young first-time founders. They they had, um, you know, been working in their respective industries for for decades, and to see them sort of like try to go from like 
I'm going to put this together with just my own like angel money. So I'm going to try to raise institutional capital to I'm going to try to commercialize this technology to different pivots in business models. I enjoy that ride and I had to experience it for myself for the greater part of three and a half years to sort of solidify in my mind that this was something that I, I wanted to, to do. I think while also a transparency, you know, seeing that grand vision that the founders had to bring technology to, to, to the later stage of drug development, particularly clinical trial design, clinical trial execution and so on, I thought, you know, technology is gonna have its moment uh, in pharma. And I thought perhaps I could start a company to bring technology to the earliest stage, right? I'm more of a bench scientist, I'm more of like the discovery person, not so much a development person. So I think that those things had to come together. And I think another thing that had to come together was a credible path to funding for a first time entrepreneur, um, you know, and at the time, you know, uh, accelerator programs like Y Combinator, uh, and now several others spitting up like Petri, even just this past week, Curry.bio, so many different, um, you know, uh, vessels for funding for first time uh, young founders, which hadn't existed in biotech you know biotech had funded a certain phenotype of individual for for the better part of uh, a century right and so um all of these things had to come together and frankly i had to sit and talk to my husband and say look i'm gonna leave my very lucrative job and i'm gonna make this leap so so, so there were some personal factors there. There were some some macro factors there, and just had to they all had to come together at the right time to actually go start nineteen ten genetics uh, in late twenty eighteen. Yeah, well, you know that you mentioned Y Combinator, like you you were part of that accelerator in the winter of twenty nineteen. Like, what was the pitch, right? Because whatever it was, Sam Altman liked it and you know, made you part of the team. Um, so what did you, what did you say back then that got everybody's attention? Yeah, my, my, I had a little bit of a, a non-traditional path to YC. The first, the most important thing was I didn't want to apply to YC. I did not want to do YC. Um, I, I heard about it. I happened to be in San Francisco and they were hosting a female founder summit uh in late 2018 september 2018 and so i just went out there frankly for free food and free wine and you know i met all these people they sounded smart and then i told them about what i was my background and just as a founder and like what i was thinking about and i just went back to boston and uh, and the deadline came for the yc application and i did not apply i i really was not going to do it um and then i got an email from like three different partners at YC emailed me to say, hey, we didn't see an application from you. We thought that you were very interested in the program. You know, what can we do to encourage you to apply and so on and so forth. But long story short, they finally encouraged me and, and convinced me to, to apply. And so I did and I got in um, and I, I participated in the winter 2019 batch, which went from January through uh, March, April of 2019. Um, Speaking about speaking of Sam Altman, Sam did not initially invest in us um, going through the batch. He invested after the batch as part of our as our seed round. Uh, he ended up making the largest single investment into the seed round, so he is the the lead of the seed round. And and Sam came in uh, precisely during COVID when. Um, you know, there was a lot of interest to apply, you know, um, just accelerated approaches to try to uh, come up with different therapeutics for, for, for COVID. And for us, 
we were able to uh, deploy our platform uh, against a couple of host proteases, so human host proteases that help the SARS-CoV-2 virus enter the cells. And we were able to very rapidly identify some promising initial lead molecule candidates on the small molecule side. Um, and that work was featured in Science Magazine and, and the NIH and NIAID and NCATS invited us to, to talk about that work and how we were able to deploy AI so quickly to come up with some leads. We, we ultimately, just from a strategic perspective, did not choose to continue for the development of some of these starting hits, but that was where Sam came into, into the picture um, to, to, to sort of round out the syndicate in our seed round. And I think the pitch for us at the time was that we were going to, you know, leverage um, you sort of different biological pathways for which I had intimate knowledge. Uh, for example, like the calpane pathway, uh, cysteine protease signaling, calcium signaling pathways, dysregulation in calcium homeostasis more broadly and how it impacted different kinds of diseases across the neuroscience, oncology, immunology spectrum. And we're gonna find different ways to drug them. I think that we're very much still doing that today, but the vision for 1910 today is far bigger than dysregulation in calcium homeostasis and all the diseases that result from it. So I'd say if you looked at our YC application, it was, it was, it was what we are today is probably a hundred X of that same idea, but we have not deviated too much from this underlying concept of, we want to understand disease biology. We want to understand disease biology. And then as we are growing as a company, we're building more and more innovative tools um, to um, sort of tackle uh, disease biology. Yeah, so, you know, just to give everybody sort of the, the, the stages, right? You were at YC, you came back, you set up at Lab Central, because I remember I came and visited you there yeah. then. Mm -hmm. um, well, you've, we up, you we identified up, these two molecules. We actually didn't come from, so when we came from YC, we set up first at Cambridge Innovation Center. We did not go into Lab Central directly. So for about a year or so, that's right. We um, talked yeah, we about that. We sat down and we talked about that. Cambridge Innovation Center. And while we were at Cambridge Innovation Center, we were evaluating different incubators. So applying to places like Lab Central, Alexandria, uh, Lunch Labs, and so on. And we were accepted at Lab Central and then moved into Lab Central in November of 2019. Yeah. Yeah. I remember like we got together and it was funny. And th this is a strange story and maybe it's dating me. But I remember you said, you know, you're sort of woke. And I was like, I don't know what that word means. I should go look that up. <laughs> um, but so you you found these two molecules in coronavirus. I think you made a, vir you know, you pitched it at a virtual summit that uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci had convened. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's when you made your first contact with Microsoft, which eventually became the lead investor for your Series A. And so just to tell everybody, like I'm fast forwarding to 2021, you did a $22 million Series A round. Uh, you moved your offices to the seaport. Um, let's talk about where the company is today. I don't know, how many people do you have? What are the main programs you're working on? What's the business model? Are you collaborating with large pharma? I mean, give me the the, you know, let, let's get people up to date on where you are with the company and what's going on. 
Yeah, just uh, as a little bit of a summary again, started the company in May of 2018, did a, a 4 million seed round uh, that was uh, led by Sam Altman. Uh, that round closed um, in 2019, um, uh, early 2020. Um, and then, uh, middle of 2021 or early 2021 rather did another 22 million um in in series a that was co-led by uh m12 uh, microsoft's venture mm -hmm. fund and playground global and in terms of how microsoft came to learn about us um uh just quick story in late 2020 one of my friends that i had known from when i was a phd student at tufts uh koki harasaki he was a research investigator at novartis when i was a phd student at tufts and we invited him to give a seminar to our phd uh student group and that was where koki and i met each other for, for the first time and uh we wouldn't have we couldn't have imagined that 10 years later, Koki would be an investor into 1910 because he went on to join Microsoft's venture fund. And he was actually the one who sourced 1910 and actually convinced us to begin raising a series A when we actually didn't need the money and weren't, we're, we're not in a fundraising process. Uh, Microsoft preempted the round, but all that said, uh, we closed that additional 22 million financing in February of 2021. And the goal was to, you know, build out the team. Uh, at the time of the series A close, we were like seven employees, myself and like six other very brilliant, but young and uh, fresh graduates from PhD programs, top PhD programs, uh, you know, with backgrounds in like computation and, and some biology and AI and so on. So a key goal of the Series A was in fact to build a management team uh, to to build to bring on people who actually knew how to develop drugs. Um, I'd say a second goal of the Series A financing was to take the AI and chemistry platforms that we had built and scale them up. At the time of the Series A funding, we were doing like we're able to design uh, drugs for like one target at a time. And we wanted to scale up the and parallelize the platform such that we could be working on 10 targets in parallel if we needed to. So there was a lot of uh, scale up that needed to be done to the platform. Uh, the third thing that we had to do with the Series A funding was to build out our own biological wet lab capabilities. Uh, it's, a, it's a key differentiation for us as well. And there's a lot of companies that are competition only or virtual companies and so on. We recognize early on that our ability to control our fate on the biology side, at least on the early biology, uh, was going to be key. And so we sort of spent like 13 months building out our own facility in the seaport, outfitting it and then and automating it uh, and scaling up our assay design capabilities more than a thousand X um, such that we can continue to feed the AI and ML with high quality proprietary data sets. Um, and I'll say the fourth goal for the Series A financing was to combine all of those scaled elements. So a scaled team, a scaled AI platform, a scaled wet lab platform to bring all of that together and start translating into a drug pipeline. Uh, we, were very in, we were very intentional in the beginning to, in recognizing that there was gonna be a period of time where we're just focused on the platform build. And we didn't want to be too distracted by, you know, sort of like traditional asset discovery, because we knew that if we got the platform elements right, um, when we begin deploying it, it would be easier for us to move assets forward. So um, we, we, we got to a point last year where we started to think about, okay, I think the platform is, is has scaled considerably. It's not all the way where it needs to be, but it has scaled considerably for us to start, you know, um, 
growing the drug pipeline. And at that point, uh, we we sort of set out business model, as you alluded to. On the one hand, we wanted to build our own internal pipeline of a few uh, programs that we want to take all the way to FDA approval, hopefully ourselves, with subsequent rounds of, of fundraising and other source, sources of uh, non-dilutive funding. And then on the other hand, we wanted to create an external pipeline um, that, was, uh, that would be comprised of programs that are partnered with uh, pharma companies, et cetera, whom uh, approach us to leverage our platforms um, in, in discovering drugs against targets of their own interest. So last year, we, we made strides on both fronts on our internal pipeline. We, we clearly define our therapeutic area strategy um, in areas like neuroscience, uh, which includes <coughs> neurology, pain and 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 um, neurodegeneration but this sort of new burgeoning area of precision neuroscience which means mm -hmm. you want to do for neuroscience what was done for oncology some 20 years ago um and then the other area we, we defined was immunology autoimmune and then rare and genetic diseases we prioritize these three and we have we had programs um in all of these three areas moving at different stages in the early drug discovery phase with the most advanced being in uh, lead optimization today. Uh, and then on the external partnership side of things, we um, did our first sort of uh, uh, initial uh, partnership with a major pharma company in the autoimmune immune space and kind of use that as um, you know a test case to work out a lot of kinks in um, everything from like IP arrangements to economics, how we structure deals, because, um, you know, partnering with pharma obviously is very important. It's, it's a very critical, um, you know, uh, a source of um, uh, economics for a lot of biotech companies, but for platform companies in particular, thinking about the business model now versus later, thinking about the financial structure of deals is, is very important. So we were really able to use that first partnership to work out, um, you know, how should we do deals going forward? Um, you know, and, and, and that was beneficial. And so this year is is what I call our partnering year. Uh, we brought on a chief business officer at the end of last year uh, because uh, partnering is a key focus for us this year. We feel like, we have scaled the platform enough and we have more clarity around the business model and around what types of partnerships we really want to be in and honestly what kinds of partnerships we don't want to be in and so this year uh we're only two months into the year but we we have several um ongoing partnering conversations and we're hoping to uh close on a number of those uh in the in the second quarter of the year yeah, I mean, I've talked to, I was just talking to Alex from Insilico just earlier this week, and he was saying, like, we need partners. Like, we can't, there's no way for us to take everything that we're, the platform is generating forward. So, you know, Big Pharma is sort of our friend, in a sense, as, as opposed to a competitor, right? So um, when you've got a platform, you, you, you can't take everything forward, right? You need somebody else to take some you know, promising products forward for you or with you. Absolutely. Let's pause the conversation for a minute to talk about one small but important thing you can do to help keep the podcast going. And that's leave a rating and review for the show on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open Apple Podcast app on your smartphone Search for The Harry Glorickian Show and scroll down to the Ratings and Review section. Tap the stars to rate the show 
and then tap the link that says write a review to leave your comments. It'll only take 30 seconds, but you'll be doing a lot to help other listeners discover the show. And one more thing. If you like the interviews we do here on the show, I know you'll like my new book, The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. It's a friendly and accessible tour of all the ways today's information technologies are helping us diagnose disease faster, treat them more precisely, and create personalized diet and exercise programs to prevent them in the first place. The book is now available in print and ebook formats. Just go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble and search for The Future You by Harry Glorickian. And now, back to the show. Let's jump back to the technology at the sort of the core of what you're doing. You got a single discovery platform which can accelerate both small and large molecule drugs. Maybe maybe we start with the small molecule platform. Like can you explain you know what does the discovery platform do? What makes it unique? Maybe you can break down the process a little bit from hit discovery to lead generation to lead optimization. You know, I don't know, where does the training data come from for the machine learning algorithms? You get the idea, sort of right. draw a picture for us if you can. Right. The first thing I would say is that um, we we don't see the, the, the clear distinction between large and small molecules that a lot of people see. And I know that probably sounds like blasphemy to most of the industry. So what I'm just going to say to you is that... Um, the processes or the stages in early drug discovery for both small and large molecules are, are the same. It's you start out with hit finding. You want to find a hit compound or a hit large molecule. Then you go to hit to lead. Then you go to lead optimization. At least those three stages, both large and small molecules go through those same stages. And uh, what we have built is a single platform that works, um, and we call it input transform output uh, or ITO. And so given a problem, and we always start with with the problem, which is the output. Given a problem, a drug design problem, we begin by asking ourselves, what is the input data we have? So a drug design problem could be, hey, here's a kinase. I want you to design a novel allosteric selective inhibitor of this kinase using this as a small molecule, okay? Or you could say, um, I am trying to, I have a current antibody and I want to increase its half-life from say four weeks to 12 weeks. At the surface, those are two very different questions um, pertaining to two very different modalities. One is around create me a new molecule from scratch. The other is around optimize an existing antibody. And what we're saying is at 1910, we see similarities in both of those questions. And we will go through the same process of asking, let's start with the input. What is the What are the sets of input data that we have? Existing data, and then we, we dive into the biological data stream. We talked about having our own a high-powered biological automation facility. So what data can we generate at scale? And then the second thing we go to is computational data stream. 
big pharma is characterized by a low data regime. All of biotech is. You would never have enough data to leverage certain types of AI ML technologies. And one of the ways that we are overcoming the low data regime problem uh, is by supplementing biological data streams with computational data streams. But the thing about computational data streams is that while you can generate them at scale, they tend to have a lot of noise. And so you really need to figure out like computationally what computational data is actually relevant to, to the disease, to the clinical endpoint and so on. So we take all of this and then we begin the process of transforming it. We do multiple levels of transformation and this is where the AI ML is doing the transformation, transforming this data, computational only, biological only, the mixture of computational and biological and so on and so forth, continuing to transform it with multiple different model uh, architectures. So where generative AI is the right one to use, you use that. Where it's not the appropriate one to use, you pick the right architecture for, for the problem and you're not, you're not trying to just throw the latest and greatest AI ML at a problem when it doesn't fit. And so that's what we talk, what, what I say transform the data. What I mean is, is, is the process of model selection, architecture selection, data curation, data, data prep, data futurization, data representation, and getting to see which models are doing the best job at answering that question. Remember the questions were very diverse. And so once we're done with the transformation process, we do uh, further uh, computational structural biology, and then we're going through the process of synthesis. So in, in the case of antibodies, we can synthesize the resultant antibodies and see whether they have increased half-life, or we can synthesize the small molecules and see whether they're in fact novel and selective and so on. And then we get to the output stage and we begin testing them in our own in-house assays. We have developed uh, primary uh, and secondary biochemical and cellular assays at scale where we can test. And so we come out with the output. And so what we're essentially saying is that there are a lot of problems in pharma that in drug discovery that you can use the same input transform output uh, single process to tackle and, and all you just need to be clear about is what are your data sources? How do you overcome the low data regime problem? How do you transform the data? And are you transforming the data in the right way? Um, and how do you think about the correct output metric that actually is relevant to the disease, to, to the indication, et cetera? Well, and all the, you know, the quality control checkpoints along the way, right? To make sure that your data, is, as you're transforming, you're not sort of, there's no errors being introduced in that process, right? So from an engineering perspective, is just setting up ways to say, yes, this is running the right way and the data coming out looks correct, right? Right. Well, there's the machine learning engineering piece, which is around things like machine learning operations, model metrics, performance, runtime, and all of that. There are those things. But what I mean when I say model selection is just the performance, the, the scientific results that you're getting. If, for example, you had um, tasked the generative AI with um, in the transformation step, you had given it some input data and you wanted it to transform that input data and generate new molecules for you, you are not only going to be looking at the, the model metrics of like model runtime and so on. You're going to look at the actual molecules that were generated 
And you're going to ask, well, are these molecules even valid? Are these drug-like? Are these um, even molecules I want to bother manufacturing? So when I talk about looking at the output of the models, I'm actually talking about the actual scientific output that you're getting and asking yourself, is this the right model architecture based on the output I'm getting? Is this the right model architecture for this particular problem? Or do I need a different tool out of my toolbox? And the, and the good thing about the way we approach it is we don't try to sell you on any particular ML architecture, as opposed to perhaps some other AI companies who would say, oh, I built a graph convolutional neural network that does this particular thing. We, we For us, it's not about the model itself because the models, frankly, are commoditized, right? They're commoditized. Everybody has access to graph convolutional neural networks or you know some form of reinforcement learning or whatever. So I often take a step back when I hear AI companies begin their pitch with like, I have a graph convolutional neural network that does this because I'm like, there's so many times we have run graph convolutional neural networks and the scientific outputs were not what we desired. You know what I mean? Right. And so why, why sort of hone in on the model type? Because that's rarely ever the most important decision you have to make on the way to, um, you know, discovering a new therapeutic. Yeah, and you can imagine from where I sit hearing all these pitches, at some point you're like, oh, Jesus. Uh, so, <laughs> but, you know, I did find... Maybe we could talk about one of your projects because I did find some stuff that's sort of already, you know, publicly out there. I think you got a uh, $550,000 grant from NIH to look at small molecule non-opioid drugs for the treatment of chronic pain, which would be awesome. Um, but, you know, how does that problem lend itself to the 1910 approach? I mean, what if, you know, beyond that, what have you learned uh, from that project about maybe the genetic roots of pain or, you know, or, or about the best ways to use computational methods to sort of get to what you're trying to, to uncover in this project. Yeah, I know that there's a lot that I love about our ongoing work uh, that's funded by the National Institutes for Neurological Disorders and Stroke, the NINDS and the NIH. Um, uh, first and foremost is it builds on disease biology that I eliminated during my PhD work. So this idea around calcium dysregulation and um, how certain um you know, disease targets, how certain biological targets that are responsive to calcium, um, how they uh, could, you know, you know, sort of start certain disease processes. So the underlying biology was something that I had uncovered during my PhD work. Now, what, what I did not have during my PhD work was a novel molecule to, to sort of target that disease biology. And that's where the NIH funding came in. And, and so the, the goal there was to, can you, um, again, going back to the 1910 input transform output single platform process is defining the output as, hey, we want to arrive at a small molecule, brain penetrance, selective, protease family selective, inhibitor that was also selective against the entire opioid family and could have broad application in different uh, types of chronic pain. So whether it be neuropathic pain or, you know, um, 
you know, some forms of chronic pain associated with sickle cell disease or, you know, peripheral infl inflammatory pain that is chronic in etiology and so on. And, and so we, we got that grant from the NIH about 18 months ago, and, and we've been working on that project. And we're actually now in lead optimization with some of our lead series. Um, so, uh, again, it's about we, we don't think of that problem any different than, say, the antibody problem I described to you. We, again, to us, it's about what is the output? define the output, what are the metrics, and then work backwards from the output and say, okay, well, what does my input need to be? Uh, what, what, are, what are the existing data that I have? What are the biological data streams I need to create, the computational data streams I need to create? Then go to the transform step. How can I transform this data? And what are the right sorts of AI ML approaches I need to use? And you might not know the right one initially, but you try a couple of different transformational steps. And in the case of this opioid example, we, we leverage four different ML architectures. We, we leveraged um, a, a, a long short-term memory network. We leveraged uh, a random matrix discriminator. We leveraged a graph neural network all in parallel to, to get to the final sets of initial lead molecules that we had today. So it's an example of uh, how we've taken a very clearly defined problem, uh, turned it into a very clearly defined output in the form of like desired chemical characteristics in the lead molecule and the lead compound, and, and then started to build the, the input data that we need and, and transforming that data in all kinds of ways uh, to arrive at what we hope to be, hopefully a development candidate uh, soon. So trying to get to the, to the closing here, but as, as the company grows, what milestones, you know, should people be watching for over the next, I don't know, year, five years from the company, you know, how will you know or how will people be able to sort of recognize them? I know, I know I'm always encouraging you like press release. We need to, yeah, information, <laughs> get information out there, right? Yeah, yeah, um, and you, I know, I know you like to keep close, you know, stuff close to the vest. So how, how, how do we measure how do you measure success? Um, yeah. yeah, I think I think for me, there's the, the bigger question of how do I measure success of the company? And for me, I've always said I started this company to bring drugs to patients. And when all is said and done, that's how I'm going to measure success. How how did 1910 succeed and, and in how many different indications did we succeed? So that's sort of like my bigger picture, what I consider my life's work, right? In terms of this year, what what people can look to for us is yeah we've we we're not we're not too big on the press releases as you've known that about me from the from the beginning. Um, but I think this year we wanna we wanna be a bit more vocal about um, technological progress. Uh, we've shied away up until now from publishing. Um, key aspects of our technology, but I think this year you're going to see more from us, especially around this idea uh, and this differentiation um, pillar of building a synergistic platform that can tackle both small and large molecule therapeutic questions. I think mm -hmm. uh, whether in the form of uh, scientific publications or in the form of uh, blog posts or scientific presentations, I, I think that this year we're going to be more vocal than we've been in, in showing why we think the industry needs to start to think of these as being opportunities to cross-learn versus mm -hmm. I'm a small 
mm-hmm. guy or I'm an antibody guy, you know, and so on. I think that's one of the big things that I think I'm excited about to see my team sort of be out there in different forums um, to sort of share how we're thinking about this and why we think it's 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 somewhat revolutionary uh, um, in, in, in the way drug discovery is being done. I'd say that um, uh, potentially want to also be vocal about some partnerships uh, this year. Um, we've we've done, like I said, uh, a major partnership in the past, and we didn't announce that. But I think this year we want to be vocal about partnerships, and this year we want to also be vocal about you know progress in our pipeline, um, and 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 ultimately be vocal about fundraising, whatever the next uh, fundraising milestones for us might be. Well. As someone in the space, I, I look forward to reading the papers and reading the press releases and, and you know, keeping track of the company. And, and I wish you, you know, incredible success because, you know, we need companies in the space to move forward and be successful. So great having you on the show. Thank you so much, Harry. It was my pleasure. That's it for this week's episode. You can find a full transcript of this episode as well as the full archive of episodes of The Harry Glorikian Show and Moneyball Medicine at our website. Go to glorikian.com and click on the tab Podcasts. I'd also like to thank our listeners for boosting The Harry Glorikian Show into the top 3% of global podcasts. If you want to be sure to get every new episode of the show automatically, be sure to open Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player and hit follow or subscribe. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we always love to hear from listeners on Twitter, where you can find me at hglorikian. Thanks for listening, stay healthy, and be sure to tune in two weeks from now for our next interview.